Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. His Word. Tonight we're looking at Revelation 2, and we're going to read verses 8 through 11. We're going to read that as we go, though. So if you wouldn't mind, pray with me over this, Jesus. Jesus, we're so thankful. Jesus, I'm so grateful to be in your presence tonight. I'm so grateful for another opportunity to open up your word, to hear from you. Jesus, I'm asking that you would open up our hearts tonight. God, that you would speak clearly. That you would open up our understanding, Lord. Help us to walk away with a greater love for You, for Your Word. Jesus, let the seed of Your Word fall on good ground tonight. Let the seed of Your Word fall on good ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This week we come to the second letter of the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This week, we are going to read with the church of Smyrna the letter that was written to them. Last week, we were with the church of Ephesus. And what a contrast you're going to see between the two. The church in Ephesus was a church that had been around for a long time. It was a great church. It was a large church. It was the happening church. It was the church known for standing for the truth, fighting for sound doctrine. It was a great church. But in all of that, we found that even, and, and they received so many commendations, so many, um, positive things, so many praises from the Lord Jesus. And he praised them for their endurance. He praised them for their stand for righteousness and the truth. And then we read that one little critique, if you will. And the one critique, the one condemnation of the church of Ephesus was enough to silence the rest of the praise that they had received. Jesus says, you've left your first love. What he was saying is, is somewhere along the way in fighting for righteousness and truth and sound doctrine, Somewhere along the way, you left your love for me, and it just became duty. It just became the thing that you had to do. And so it was a stern 
word of rebuke that the church of Ephesus received. Contrast this with the church of Smyrna and what they received. Let's Before we look at that, let's look a little bit about the city. If you were to leave the town of Ephesus and travel 35 miles to the north, you would enter the town of Smyrna, the city of Smyrna. It was equal to Ephesus in grandeur. If you remember last week, we talked about how Ephesus was around 500,000 in population. It was a wealthy city. Well, Smyrna was equally wealthy, extremely wealthy, and that's important. Hold on to that. This was a beautiful city. It was considered the crown of Asia, what they would call this city. But for Christians, it wasn't just a beautiful city, it was also a dangerous city, an extremely dangerous city. The city itself was drowning in emperor worship. It was known for its opposition to the gospel. It's fighting against the gospel. It's pushing back against the gospel. If you were in this city, they would let you know that it's, they were a pluralistic society. So it was okay, Brother Jeff, to worship Jesus. That didn't bother them as long as you also worshiped Caesar, as long as you also praised the emperor. What really bothered them, what they could not accept, would not accept, is someone who only worshiped Jesus. That bothered them greatly. The city was strongly opposed to that. To many, the Christians there were considered unpatriotic, unpatriotic because they would not bow a knee to the emperor. They would not praise the emperor. And so it was a tough situation if you are a Christian living in the city of Smyrna. This letter to the church in Smyrna is the shortest of all of the letters, all of the seven letters. It is, interestingly, one of only two that does not contain a rebuke from Jesus. Five letters contain a rebuke from the Lord to the church. Two of them do not. Smyrna is one of the churches that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord. And it's interesting, Christianity today is so consumed, so caught up with wealth and numbers. That's, that's, that's a big part of Christianity today. Interestingly though, the two churches who did not receive a rebuke from Jesus had a couple of things in common. Neither one of them had great wealth and neither one of them had great numbers. Because there are certain things that matter to the Lord more than those. And we want to see financial blessing, and we want to see revival in great numbers, and I believe we're going to see revival in Purcell. But we know that those two things in and of themselves do not garner the favor of Jesus. Jesus is interested in other things. That brings us to the letter. Let's look at verse number 8. We find the letter contained in verses 8 through 11. 
it opens up like this. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. We mentioned last week that in each of these letters, Jesus reveals something about himself to the church that he's writing to. Um, sometimes it's nothing new. It's a reminder to the church of an attribute of his. In this case, he just reminds them. He reminds them that he is the first and he is the last. What is he doing? He's emphasizing he, his eternality. The fact that he is in control. The fact that Jesus is sovereign over every part of life. Jesus is first. Interestingly enough, if you study the city of Smyrna, you're going to find that that city claimed, interestingly, to be the first city of Asia. And they were proud of that fact. And they wrote it on their coins. And they were the first city. And so I find it very interesting that Jesus starts out the letter to the church that's in that city that considers itself the first city of Asia. Jesus, right off the bat, claims, I was before Smyrna. Not only was Jesus before Smyrna, but he was before Asia. And he was before Europe. In fact, Jesus says, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of history, and I was before that. Jesus said, I am the first, and I am the last. Jesus was encouraging his church that he was around before the city, he was around before the emperor, and he'll be around long after the emperor is gone. Jesus is first and last. And we talked about it before. Before Every time Jesus claims to be the first and the last, he is claiming to be God Almighty. He's claiming to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. It was Yahweh through Isaiah that wrote, I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no other God. There's nobody like Jesus, nobody beside Jesus. Jesus said, I am first and I am last. The next thing he points out, and he points it out to encourage the believers, he says not just that he is first and that he is last, but that he was dead and is alive forevermore. So Jesus points out to this church, and it's important that he does so. He encourages them. He says, not only am I sovereign over life as the first and the last, but I'm also sovereign over death. Literally, he says, I was dead and now I live. I'm alive forevermore. You know, I, I've heard of a lot of people that have lived and then died, but never anyone that died and then lived. But Jesus starts out and says, I was dead, but now I'm alive and alive forevermore. And we know earlier in Revelation, Jesus said that he was the first fruit. So he's the first one that conquered death, hell, and the grave. So there's something encouraging about Jesus pointing to the believers and telling them, I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. 
more. The eternal one, the God that created everything, died but now lives. These attributes specifically encouraged the saints that were at Smyrna. It was no accident that Jesus highlighted these specific attributes. It was no, it was no coincidence that he pointed out to this church that he was first and last, that he was dead but is alive forevermore. This church, as we're going to see, is going through a lot. Look at verse number 9. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Chuck Swindoll, speaking of the moment this church heard this letter, sums it up this way, putting it in its context. Here's what he says. Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp-lit room houses the remaining beaten and beleaguered church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now features obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or even executed. Some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning to pray, sing hymns to God, and read from Holy Scripture. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, your pastor unrolls a scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear who sent the message, the risen Lord Himself. The entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins His commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. That's what it would have been like if you had been one of the believers that day that received this letter from Almighty God. They were in desperate need of something positive. They were in desperate need of something encouraging because they had been suffering severe persecution. And in the middle of that, the messenger comes and the messenger gives them a word. Jesus starts the letter like he starts all the others. He says, I know. Again, we want to emphasize We serve a God that knows. Nothing escapes the gaze, the all-consuming gaze of Almighty God. He sees all of us. He sees in us. He sees our hurts and our pain. Our circumstance is not hidden from Him. More than that, His I know has an even deeper meaning, an even deeper meaning. He knows from experience what Smyrna is facing. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus says, I know, he's not just saying, I see everything. I know what you're going through. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten your name. I know exactly what you're fighting and facing. More than that, Jesus says, I know experimentally what you are going through. I lived life. I walked as a man. I suffered uh, persecution alongside you. I know what it's like to be stricken with poverty. I know what it's like to face rejection and betrayal. I know what it's like to be hated by the crowds. Jesus wants the church at Smyrna to know that they're not all by themselves. That Jesus isn't just saying, I see what you're going through. He's saying, I know what you're going through. I have felt what you felt, what you feel. That's the, that's the encouraging opening note from Almighty God. Jesus says, I know. Then there are two marks of genuine Christianity. We know that one is love for God and we know the other is suffering for God. I want to be clear. I had this written in my notes just to point it out. It is a, it is a mark of genuine Christianity. And we're going to talk about the fact that suffering is unavoidable. It's a part of being a Christian. Love for God and suffering for God. Those are marks of genuine Christianity. But be that as it may, we are not to go out of our way looking for suffering. There are people that wake up in the morning. And they're looking for reasons to be suffering. And it's this, this has caused me problems today, and that has caused me problems today, and woe is me, and everything's falling apart, and that's not the will of God. That's not what God is talking about. There is genuine suffering. If you are a genuine Christian, you've had a genuine encounter with Almighty God, I want to be clear, you don't have to go looking for suffering. Suffering will find you. Amen. And it's how we respond to suffering that shows what we have inside of us, that genuine touch from Almighty God. Suffering is a natural byproduct of living for God. And I'll prove it to you. John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. I just want to point out, We are serving every day. We are working every day to be like Jesus. But as much as we're trying to be like Jesus, we are not greater than Jesus. And Jesus pointed out if they did it to him, they're going to do it to us. I just don't understand this Christianity that wants to become so friendly with the world. They, they want so badly to impress those that are in the world, for the world to say nice things about us. I've got to be clear, according to Scripture, the nicer the world gets about us, the less and less we must look like Jesus. 
because the more we look like Jesus, the less the world's going to like us. So what we ought to do is just settle in our spirit. They're not going to like us. They're not going to appreciate us. So I'm going to wake up every morning and just try to be like Jesus. Amen. We don't, we're not looking to, to build a seeker-friendly church. We're looking to build a Jesus-pleasing church. A church that Jesus is pleased with. Amen. We're not greater than Jesus. The world hated Him, so the world is going to hate us also. That's an unavoidable truth of the Word of God. Look at John 16.33. Jesus says again, These things I have spoken unto you, here we go, that in me you might have peace, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Shall is an imperative. It's not an option. It's not something that might happen to us. You may have a hard time. You might go through tribulation. Jesus said that if you're in the world, you will have tribulation. But he didn't just leave us hopeless. He said you've got hope. Even though you're going to have tribulation, you've got me on the inside. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Jesus said, I've already overcome the world. So what does that tell us? We can have confidence. Even though we go through tribulation and we go through hard times, we can still overcome. We can make it through. Amen. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. The Bible says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, here we go, shall suffer persecution. If you're going to live for God, if you're going to please God in this last hour, if you're going to make it, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to live a life that God is pleased with, you had better just brace yourself for it. Just get it solved deep down in your spirit that there's going to be people that don't like you. There's going to be people that even hate you, that even would persecute you. Why? For, for one reason only, and that is that you're trying to live godly and separated unto the Lord. The Bible says that if you choose to live that way, you're going to suffer persecution. I'm not trying to get you down tonight. I'm just trying to point out a truth. It's, it's true. It's in the word of God. Because there is a, that we are so far opposite from the world. Love of God and love of the world are so far opposites. They're on complete other sides of corners from each other. So the more you love God, the more the world is going to be distant from you and dislike you. Amen. Look at Philippians 129. Philippians 129. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, here we go, but also to suffer for his sake. So it's, it's, it's just a given. If you're going to believe on him, if you're going to serve him, you're also going to be required to suffer for his sake. Philippians 3 and verse 10. Philippians 3 and verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Suffering is a natural part of the Christian life. 
Suffering doesn't come to those who aren't, who aren't pleasing to God. Suffering will come to those who are pleasing to God. Suffering's not just coming to those who are stuck in sin. Suffering's going to come to those who are doing everything they can to live for God. And we've got this letter tonight written to a church that was bogged down by suffering. Suffering on all sides, severe persecution, and they knew this is just a part of living for God, and yet it doesn't make it any easier. Reading all of those scriptures to you, letting you know that it's going to happen, giving you advance notice that you're going to run into some things, that doesn't make it any easier when that happens. Doesn't make it any easier when, when you get into that conflict. Mike Tyson is best known for his quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And it's true. We can read all the scriptures that tell us that suffering's coming. We can read all the scriptures that tell us that because we're a Christian, we're going to go through it and Jesus has overcome the world. And so we can overcome, but it still doesn't make it any easier when we're faced with suffering. When we run into things in this world, when we have lost loved ones that hurt us and we've got friends that purposely try to offend us and we've got co-workers who are, who are berating us and belittling us and maybe when we lose influence and lose uh, financial opportunities all because we're just trying to serve God, it doesn't make it any easier. And so this church, they know that suffering is, is part of living for God, but it doesn't make it easier. And they are severely suffering for the truth. And so Jesus lets them know. He sees them, they're not alone, and He knows what they're going through. And the first thing Jesus says that He sees, He identifies two things. He says, the first thing, I see you're suffering through tribulation. Physical Economical, social, religious persecution, all of it. These saints were under severe attack. And Jesus just lets them know, I know what you're going through. I haven't forgotten you. It's easy whenever you're going through that and you're going through that trial, it's easy to think maybe Jesus has forgotten me. Maybe he's, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't have a hand of favor upon my life. Maybe, maybe I've done something wrong. But Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna and says, you've not done anything wrong. I see what you're going through. I see the tribulation. I see the struggle, the fight that you're going through. Again, physical, economical, social, religious, all of it, they were dealing with attacks from left and right. It was hard to live for God in the city of Smyrna. Secondly, Jesus says, not only do I see the tribulation that you're facing, but Jesus says that he sees their poverty. Now, I told you to hold on to that fact from the beginning. Remember, I told you that this was a very wealthy city. So this stands out as something of interest. In a very wealthy city, you would think that the church would be made, made of wealthy people and wealthy saints because it was a city of wealth. Wealth was abundant in Smyrna. And yet Jesus looks at the church and says, I see your tribulation. And not only that, but I see your poverty. 
And more than that, if you look at that word poverty, what it means is abject poverty. It means severe poverty, not just ordinary poverty. It means harsh poverty. In the middle of a city that had wealth abundant, they were in severe poverty. Most likely, and the reason that Jesus identifies it, is because their poverty had to have been a direct result of their faith. Their belief in Jesus Christ. No doubt what's happening in the city of Smyrna is there are Christians who when they became Christians, they lost influence. And they lost positions at their jobs. And they were began to be boycotted and ostracized and mistreated. No doubt there were businessmen that had become Christians that had lost everything because the people of the city would no longer do business with them. Because they were unpatriotic. You won't bow to the knees of Caesar, so we're not going to buy your product anymore. You won't bow your knee to the world and to sin, so we're not going to let you advertise your, your product here anymore. It's clear that they're in abject poverty. They're in severe poverty because they are unwilling to compromise the truth of the Word of God. And so I've got a question tonight. We are getting closer and closer to the coming of the Lord. And in spite of what some people will believe, and I'm believing for great revival um, for as long as the Lord will will it. But the Bible seems to hint to something else coming our way in the last days. And that is a great falling away. And that is great darkness across the world. And so my question tonight is, would we be able, like the church of Smyrna, in the middle of tribulation and persecution, would we be able to risk it all? Would we be willing to risk it all for the name of Jesus? For the truth of the Word of God? Let me ask you this. If, if somebody came to you and said, we've got a position opening up, it's a huge pay raise, and you're the perfect person for the job, but we notice that you like to post a whole lot on social media about Jesus and what He's done for you, and that's pretty controversial, and and we don't think that's good for our business, so if you'll just stop that, we'll give you the raise. What are you going to do? Get a different job. Move on. Amen. The church of Smyrna, clearly they were willing to do it, and they suffered for it. And they decided, it's obvious, we're going to take a stand for the word of the Lord no matter what it costs us. I just wonder if if you and I would be able to have the same courage. I wonder if I would be able to stand if the government comes along and says in order to buy and sell, in order to, um, in order to have a license uh, to sell such and such product, you're going to have to get rid of the name of Jesus. And what if it comes along and they say, you know what, we've got no problem with you worshiping Jesus just as long as you'll also worship the government and whoever's in charge at that time. And we say, absolutely not. We bow to no man but Jesus. And yet there could come a day when that could cost us everything. And see me, I'm single, so it may not affect me very much. But most of y'all are married and you've got families. And you've got these people in Smyrna, and no doubt they had families, husband and wives and children. And yet they were willing to risk it all. And Jesus says, I see you. I see your tribulation. I see your poverty. And Jesus follows it up with this. You can look at it. It's written that way 
in the Scripture. But thou art rich. Jesus says, I know your works, know your tribulation. I know your poverty, severe poverty. But then right on top of that, he said, but you are rich. He says, don't forget. I know you're suffering for the gospel's sake. I know you're suffering for my name. I know you've lost everything for the cause of Christ. But don't forget, you are rich. You're rich. You've got something that the world doesn't have. You've got something that the world can't take away. What is he saying? He's saying spiritually, though they're in abject poverty, they don't lack anything. They've got it all. What what were they doing? They were obeying Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 20. Jesus said, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. If you obey that scripture, you are, you are wealthier than the wealthiest man in the world. The, the wealthiest person in the world with all the gold and all the silver and all the fine jewels of the world is not richer than the poorest Christian. The poorest Christian is wealthier than the wealthiest man and woman in the world. And it's because of that truth right there. And that's why we've got to ask ourselves, where is our focus? Are we every day laboring to build treasure in heaven and store up treasure in heaven? Is that what our goal is? Is that what our mindset is? Or are we trying to accumulate wealth down here where people can affect us? Where our love for money and things can affect us. Jesus said, you've got to point your eyes heavenward. And if you do that, then it doesn't matter what they take from you. They can't take the essential things from you. Reminds me of the tax collector that came to the preacher. He comes to the preacher in the preacher's home and says, Sir, we're going to list all of your, your wealth, all that you've got, so we can figure out how much you owe in taxes. And he says, Aren't you a wealthy man? And the preacher says, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a wealthy man. And the tax collector says, Okay, so let's list all that you've got then. Uh, start with the, start with your greatest stuff and then, and then go the smaller. And the preacher says, okay. And he says, I'm rich in faith. He says, I'm, I'm rich in mercy. He said, I'm rich in love. He said, I've got children that respect me. He's good. I got a wife that loves me. I've got a church that obeys the word of the Lord that loves serving God. He said, I've got a home that's paid for. And he just starts naming all this stuff. And the tax collector looks at him after he's done and he says, Sir, you are indeed rich, but none of your wealth is taxable. And that's the facts. You don't, we have to, you have to remind yourself sometimes just how rich you are. This, this church here was looking for a word from God and they were struggling and they're in severe persecution and they, they're suffering from severe poverty and they just need a word. And what word does Jesus give them? A reminder, you're rich. You're rich. You've got so much that the world can't take from you. Just hold on. Just stay faithful. Just keep believing. If you've got just a little bit of faith, you've got enough. Amen. That reminds me of the song that I sang that I tried to, that I tried to preach, but little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. 
There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. What's Jesus talking about? He's saying you're rich. You've got something that they don't have. You're looking around and the world may look at you and they, and they may make fun of us Christians because we don't have a lot to offer and, and, and blah, blah, blah and whatever they want to say, but we're rich. According to Jesus, we're rich. We've got stuff built up in heaven. We've got treasure in heaven that no one else has access to. Amen. Your treasure in heaven, you know what it's not subject to? It's not subject to terrible leadership. It's not subject to an economy that rises and falls with the, with the leadership of a country. Your stuff in heaven is stable. Your treasure in heaven is stable. So why not invest in heaven? Why not invest in souls that you're going to be able to see in heaven? Why not invest an hour or more in prayer or another day in fasting or more time in the word of God? We've got treasure today. Amen. The next thing Jesus tells them, he gives them two commands. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So Jesus gives them two commands. The first, he says, do not fear anything that the world can do to you. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and 28. He's almost echoing, Jesus is echoing his own words here. Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said, Fear not. And you're looking at this church in Smyrna and they're needing a word from God. They're needing encouragement. And you know what, Brother Kendall? They almost receive the opposite. They're suffering severe persecution. They're in severe poverty. Jesus says that they're rich and that gives them a little bit of encouragement and then all of a sudden the wheels fall off. And Jesus says, fear not what they will do to you, but more persecution's coming. Just brace for it. You're going to go through more, he says. Verse number 10. The devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Amen. He says that you're going through it, but it isn't over. And you're going to go through more. Fear not. Don't fear what they're going to do to you. And what I find interesting is scholars, they argue over what Jesus meant by those 10 days. You've got some of them that believe, well, what Jesus is talking about there is he's talking about epochs of time and 10 different times of persecution for the church. And then the, the next person comes along and it's um, 10 years, 10 specific years that Jesus didn't know what he was actually saying. When he said days, he meant years. And there's 10 years that are coming of persecution. And then there are others that believe that it was very literally 10 days. And I believe that Jesus was, was being literal. I, I, where you can, you should take the Bible literally. And I believe he was talking about 10 days, that they're going to suffer greatly. They've been suffering, but the, but the suffering is about to get amped up for 10 days. But that wasn't the focus. 
Whenever, a, whenever the Smyrna reader would have noticed that as they're sitting in church and they're listening to the man of God and they hear that persecution is going to last for 10 days, not discouragement, is, that's not what would come over them. Not dread, not fear, but praise to the Lord. Why? Because Jesus just put an ending date on our suffering and on our persecution. Jesus said after 10 days, it's going to stop. And so whenever they read that, they weren't going to get down in the dumps and feel bad for themselves. It's about to get really bad for 10 days. No, they're thinking, okay, at the end of this, at the end of that road, we're going to see an end to our suffering and our pain and our trials. Jesus said, fear not. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. And he said, and no only so, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. You got that right, Paul? Am I reading that right? Not only so, but we glory in it. We celebrate it. We praise the Lord for it. Why? He says, knowing that tribulation works patience or endurance and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So the church of Smyrna They're suffering persecution and they're told that they're going to have to suffer more. Do they get down? Do they get uh, distraught and beside themselves? No, they're encouraged. They glory in it. Why? Because Jesus said that there's an ending date. But more than that, as they suffer, as they go through trial, as they go through circumstances, it's building in them an endurance. And more than that, it's building in them a hope a hope for another world and another life. The more we suffer in this life, you know what it does, Brother Jeff? It points us to the next life. The more we suffer here, the more we think, I can't wait to get over there. Maybe the suffering in this life is to detach us from our love for this world and for the things of this world. Maybe we go through things in this life to refocus ourselves on that life that is to come, on that hope of another world. We were not made for this world. We were made for another world. And so the Smyrna church, you're like, well, how in the world? Can they be encouraged by this? How? Because they've got hope. One day it's going to end. One day their trial is going to be over. Their suffering is going to be through. And they're going to be able to see Jesus. Look at the end. He says, here's the other, here's the other one. So he says, fear not. The next thing he says, the command that he gives, be faithful. Fear not. Be faithful. Fear not. Be faithful. Be faithful what? Be faithful unto death. And I will give you what? I will give you a crown. A crown of what? A crown of life. In other words, Jesus is saying you're going to go through it. You're going to go through pain and more trial and more suffering. But don't be afraid of those that can only do harm to this body. Instead, fear him that could do harm to your soul. But if you'll be faithful, if you'll just stay steady, if you'll just stay committed, there is a crown and you can win that crown. There is something reserved for those that are just faithful. 
Amen. We undersell the value of faithfulness. We undersell what God thinks about faithfulness. He told his church, he said, don't fear and be faithful. Why? Because God values faithfulness. Faithfulness. He says, do not give in. Do not compromise, stand strong, and you're going to win a crown. Why? For being faithful. Faithful. You may not feel like it every Sunday. You may not feel like being a part of the church of the living God. There are going to be days when you're waking up and you're weary and you're suffering and you're just, you just don't feel up to it. But instead, you get up and you just decide to live for God one more day. I don't feel like it. I don't feel encouraged. I, I don't feel all that great in the Lord, but I'm just going to be faithful. I'm just going to take another day and I'm going to walk with Him one more time. And maybe by the end of the day, I'm feeling better. Right now, I'm not feeling good. I don't feel like serving him, but I'm just going to be faithful. And Jesus says that if you'll just remain faithful, if you'll just remain committed, there's a crown that is reserved for you in glory. There's coming a day when our suffering is over, whenever our time on this earth is ended. And whenever we get to see Jesus, it's those that have been faithful. Jesus said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He didn't say, well done, thou good and charismatic uh, servant. He didn't say, well done, thou good and always happy and always joyous servant. He didn't say, well done, thou wealthy servant. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God cares about faithfulness. So we're looking at this church and they're suffering, and they're going through it, and Jesus does not rebuke them. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't have a word of rebuke for them. They're doing everything they can, unlike the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus is standing for the truth and doing everything right, but the church, and their church is growing, they're having revival, but they've lost their first love. You know what this church hasn't done? This church hasn't lost their first love. But you know what else they're doing? They're staying faithful through suffering, which is something in and of itself. Amen. They stayed faithful. Look at verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. What is he saying here? He's saying he that hath the capacity to understand. We know because of scripture that the, that the carnal mind cannot understand the things of God. There are certain things that are spiritually discerned. That only somebody that's got the Holy Ghost can understand and can discern what is being said. So what's the spirit saying? He's saying those that are able to understand, let them understand. He that overcometh shall not be hurt by the second death. We have a promise today. The church of Smyrna, he's sitting there. And, and you know why he has to add that? He that hath an ear, let him hear. He that understandeth, let him understand. He has to add it because there are so many people that would read this letter and they would just think to themselves, what in the world is this? We've been suffering, we've been going through it, and, and I was looking for a word that says that it's going to be over tomorrow. I was looking for a word that says victory was coming tomorrow. 
I was looking for a word that says that, that God's going to bless us financially tomorrow and that our time of poverty is over and that people are going to stop ab- ab- abusing us and persecuting us. That's the word I was looking for, but it didn't come. Jesus just said, stay faithful. Jesus just said, do not, do not fear. Keep trusting Him. Keep walking with Him. And the carnal mind can't understand this. What, why is Jesus telling us that? Has He forgotten us? Has He abandoned us? But the spiritual mind, the one that's filled with the Holy Ghost, the one that understands the connection with God, understands that it was a, an encouraging letter. It was not a distraught letter. It was an encouraging letter. Jesus was telling them that their time was going to come to an end eventually. And if they would just stay Stay faithful. They're going to overcome. Amen. He said that for those that overcome, they shall not be hurt by the second death. You know what we don't talk about enough anymore? We don't talk about the second death. Be honest, we don't talk about death. In America, we don't like death. We avoid that conversation completely. As soon as that starts coming up, everybody's uncomfortable. We want to end the conversation. We want to get out of here. And that's just talking about the regular death. But what about that second death? What is the second death? It's when your body forever in hell is suffering away from Almighty God. Forever, eternally. That's the second death. And Jesus said, for those that remain faithful, they don't have to fear that second death, because they're not going to be faced with it. They're going to be alive forevermore with Jesus Christ. So yes, we're going through stuff now. Yes, we're walking through persecution now. No, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why this is happening to me or my family. I don't understand why it didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay faithful. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep serving God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep believing God. Because in the end, we win. Amen. I wonder if the music can come and we can stand. This word that was written to this church in Smyrna, they were suffering, they were distraught. And and it's a word that comes and, and like I said before, maybe... In our carnal mind, we think to ourselves, that's not the word that we would want to hear from Jesus. But the spiritual mind, the the spirit inside of those saints was worshiping and celebrating. Yes, we're going through it. That was part of the obligation. We signed up for that. We're going through it. But we've got a word from God that our suffering is not for nothing. That our trial is not for nothing. Our persecution is not for nothing. The poverty that we might have to deal with is not for nothing. But there's a crown that that we are after, that we are working for, that we can win if we will just stay faithful. I wonder if tonight, if you could find a place to pray. And I wonder if we could just recommit ourselves to faithfulness to God. Ask God to help us to suffer for the Word of God and the will of God in a way that pleases Him. You can come. You're welcome to come to the front or stay where you are, wherever you want.